If you've been around here at College Park for any number of years, maybe three or four, you've probably heard me use this oft-quoted sentence. We have to build bridges of grace that can bear the weight of truth. It's one of the statements that came out of a book by Randy Elkhorn called The Grace and Truth Paradox, Responding with Christ-like Balance. I love that sentence because I think it gets to something that's really important as it relates to following Jesus in general and as it relates to following Jesus specifically when we're dealing with challenging scenarios. It acknowledges the importance of balance in the Christian life. And the older I get, the more I realize the importance of this matter of balance. You see, we all tend towards one extreme or the other. We all tend towards grace, or some of us tend towards truth. And and typically, it's almost about 50% either way. Let Let me illustrate this for you. How many of you, by a show of hands, would say you tend towards the grace perspective? Raise your hand. Nice and high. Be proud. We're gracious people. See, these are all of the really nice people, okay? Gracious people. All right. How many of you, by a show of a raised fist, would say, truth is where it's at. Truth. Let truth. Okay. And how many of you have no idea? Put both hands. Help. (laughs) The fact of the matter is, spiritual maturity is finding, I think, an appropriate balance between these two categories. Grace without truth is simply being kind and nice without any eternal purposes, and it could actually lead to making people more comfortable in their rebellion against God. On the other hand, truth without grace can be incredibly off-putting, even offensive, as people in your sphere of influence feel like you're more interested in proselytizing them than you are in really caring for them as a person. So this idea of building bridges of grace that can bear the weight of truth has been really helpful for me as I try and distill the importance of both of these realities of grace and truth, that there are moments when truth has to be communicated, but underneath the Truth is a structure of grace that has been built over time. So this morning we're looking at Daniel chapter 4 and 5, and we're in the series, if you're joining us for the first time, on the first six chapters of the book of Daniel, and what it means to live differently. And the the aim of this short four-week series is to try and help us think through what does Christianity look like that avoids two extremes? On the one hand, avoids the extreme of a Christianity that is indistinguishable from the culture, meaning you're here, but nobody who you work with or in your neighborhood knows you're here. You're just kind of, you've gone incognito. You're happy to have your relationship with Jesus. You're happy to call yourself a Christian. But when you go out into the marketplace, into the world, into your school system, into your fraternity, you just want to keep it low-key. On the other hand, is a Christianity that walls itself off from the world and views itself as being at war with the culture. What I'm trying to argue for is what Russell Moore calls an engaged alienation, a recognition that we 
those who follow Jesus, are indeed aliens in this world. We are, have a king in another country. We have a citizenship in another realm. And at the same time, to be engaged as neighbors, as friends, as citizens. And in order to do that, we have to embrace both grace and truth. We have to build bridges of grace that can bear the weight of truth. And my hope today is that you'll be deployed from here to go out wherever you are this week and find ways to make deposits of grace, deposits of grace, deposits of grace, so that when the moment comes when you have to speak the truth of God's word, you'll have the credibility and the standing and the boldness that is required. Daniel 4. We believe that it is a number of years that have taken place between chapter three and chapter four that Daniel is probably a middle-aged man at this point. In chapter five, he's likely around 80 years old, so we see two snapshots of David's life. He is a political prisoner. Babylonian Empire had taken over his homeland. He was transported to the city of Babylon, a large city in the ancient Near East at that time, about 200,000 people. He was there because of the political power of Babylon, and he was in the court of the king in the process of being assimilated into the Babylonian culture, and Daniel and his three friends are trying to figure out how to live in Babylon without Babylon living in them. In chapters 4 and 5, we see that Daniel is called upon to deliver God's message to two political leaders, Nebuchadnezzar and another king named Belshazzar. God has positioned him in the court with the king, and he dares to speak on God's behalf. So where has God placed you? What's the place that he has put you in? Maybe it's on a factory line. Maybe it's in the context of your neighborhood, maybe it's a summer job, maybe on a sports team, maybe in a particular book club, maybe an investment group, maybe just at a Starbucks and you happen to see the same people week after week. The question is, where has God placed you and how does he want you to build a bridge of grace so that one day it can bear the weight of truth? This morning we're going to look at the way in which Daniel spoke and dared to speak to kings who were filled with pride and idolatry. He spoke truth with tenderness. He spoke truth with urgency. And then I'm going to draw some conclusions at the end. So first, truth with tenderness. Chapter 4 begins, interestingly enough, with a first-person testimonial from Nebuchadnezzar. Rather than telling the story of Daniel, chapter 4 actually records the words of Nebuchadnezzar himself. Look at it. Verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and language that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. So here's a a personal testimony from the king of the known world. And in verse 3, we see his summary. Here's the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar learned. He tells us the lesson before he tells us the story. How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Now, a theme that's running through these two chapters is the theme of kingdom and dominion, because what's at issue here is the contrast between the kingdom and authority and dominion of the Babylonian Empire and God's authority and God's kingdom. In fact, if you were to do a word search with the words kingdom and dominion, you would see them used over 20 times in this, these two chapters. 
The reason that this theme emerges is that the book of Daniel is not just about Daniel. It's not about his three friends. It's not about Nebuchadnezzar or any future king. At the end of the day, the book of Daniel is about God's supremacy over all things, including powerful human systems that seem insurmountable. I was thinking about it this week. What would it be like to live in the midst of Babylon thinking, there's no way this system is ever going to change? You ever felt like that? I can't think of anything more powerful than from a human standpoint. Maybe you can think of something. I couldn't. I can't think of anything more powerful from a human standpoint than for a person to rule a nation, like as a dictator. In fact, I've traveled a number of countries around the world, and a couple years ago, I was in a nation that I would describe as someone having a dictatorial rule. and. I was saying to one of our pastors as we were traveling through the country, you know, it's one thing to own a piece of property. It's another thing to own a company. But when you own a country, that's power. You have the military at your disposal. You have taxation at your disposal. You have land and business contracts at your disposal. And the message of the book of Daniel is even the most powerful human structures known to mankind, still bend the knee to the supremacy of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the story of Daniel. So how did Nebuchadnezzar learn this lesson? Well, once again, we see a dream, and we see Daniel's interpretation of it. According to the king's own testimony in verse 4, he says, he was at ease in my house. He was prospering. I was prospering in my palace. In other words, he's at the pinnacle of his career. Verse 5 tells us that he had another disturbing dream. And once again, he called in his wise men in order to interpret the dream, and this time he told them the dream. Last time he couldn't remember the dream, this time he tells them the dream. However, according to verse 7, no one could interpret the dream for the king, or perhaps no one wanted to interpret the dream for the king. In verse 9, Daniel enters the picture. He still holds high regard with the king of Babylon. He's described, he says, oh, Belteshazzar, that's Daniel's given Babylonian name, chief of the magicians, because I know the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. Daniel is still the chief of the magicians. He's not lost his influence over the years. Somehow, Daniel had figured out how to be faithful to God while serving the Babylonian empire faithfully as well. Here's a man in the middle of his life, still a person of influence. Daniel proceeds to tell, or the king rather, proceeds to tell Daniel the dream in verses 10 to 17, and essentially it's this. It's a large and globally honored tree and this tree is marked to be chopped down by an angelic messenger called a watcher. And additionally, the dream involved a scary proclamation regarding a person who was to lose his mind and become like a beast. Look at verse 17. The purpose of the vision, the purpose of the dream, is clear. The sentence is 
by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to to whom he wills and sets it over it and sets over it the lowliest of men. So God aims to have Nebuchadnezzar do a reset in terms of what he thinks about himself and his power, and Daniel was right in the middle of it. Don't miss the significant fact that Daniel's reputation, his godliness, his giftedness, made him the kind of person that the king turned to in the midst of this crisis. We have no, many, no, no idea how many other times this sort of thing happened, but when the king was deeply troubled, Daniel was the one he turned to. Now, we'll talk more about this in a moment, but I just want to get your mind and your heart starting to think this through. Is there anyone in your life who would describe you like Nebuchadnezzar would describe Daniel? When the, when the crisis hits, Have you built enough bridges of grace with people? Do they know that you're a person who follows Jesus? Do they know that you care such that when the bottom falls out, their marriage falls apart, they're they're, they're stuck in a a pattern that's self-destructive, that they think, now who should I call who could help me with this? Like, I'm in a bad place. Are you on that person's speed dial? You know, week after week, month after month, year after year, decision after decision, you know what you're doing? You're, you're creating and building an opportunity to speak in a moment of crisis. So don't get discouraged if that takes a long time or if you're making deposit after deposit after deposit after deposit and you're not seeing immediate fruit. You don't know. You could be just a few more deposits away between until the time when God's gonna provide a wide open door. For some of you, those kind of deposits may even happen today over lunch at Father's Day or at a gathering. Your issue isn't a person in political power. You kinda wish it was. What it really is is your own flesh and blood. And you're making deposit after deposit after deposit after deposit, and it makes it really hard to know how to pray that you'd almost dare to pray, God, would you make something happen so you could open their eyes and open their ears? So verse 19, the passage shifts away from the first person account back to the third person. Daniel considers what he hears from the king. He he hears this dream, and and in verse 19, it tells us he was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The NIV renders this, he was greatly perplexed, perplexed and terrified. New Living Translation renders it as he was overcome and frightened, and apparently this was obvious to King Nebuchadnezzar, because in verse 19, he instructs Daniel, tell me what the dream means, regardless of what what you think. Verse 19, Daniel is reluctant to share the dream. He says in verse 19, the second half, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Notice, he is a reluctant messenger. I love this about Daniel. He's not just dropping the bomb on Nebuchadnezzar. He has grace, he has compassion. He doesn't doesn't want to tell him 
what he needs to tell him, but he knows that he must tell him. Verses 20 to 26, Daniel interprets the king's dream. He tells him that the tree is to be chopped down is him, that the king will be driven from his position of honor and power and that he will become like a wild animal, losing his sense of reason. And all of this, according to verse 25, is to come so that the king will know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. In other words, king, I love you, but you need to know there's another king. And he calls Nebuchadnezzar to repent so he could be spared from judgment. Look at verse 27. O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. So what Daniel is doing here is issuing this king a tender warning. Oh, how we need reluctant but clear messengers. Look, I don't don't want to tell you this, but I wouldn't be your friend if I didn't. I I don't, it doesn't give me any joy to say this to you, but the Bible says you reap what you sow. And we're here today because of what's happened. And you can turn, you can, you can, you can follow after Christ, you can embrace what God's doing in your life. I'm not here as your judge, I'm here as your friend delivering a reluctant but true word. Do you know that that kind of role that Daniel has with Nebuchadnezzar is the kind of role that the church is supposed to have with the world? That we're supposed to be the loving, reluctant messenger in the context of the universe. Here's how the Apostle Paul says it in Ephesians chapter 3. He says, to me, though I am the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. In other words, God aims to show the manifold wisdom of himself to the entire created order by virtue of what he does in and through the church. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've been entrusted with life-changing truths, life-altering truths that need to be shared. For instance, let me just give you some from the book of Romans. Life-changing truths like The gospel is the power of God for everyone who believes. You have the ability to sit across the table at a Starbucks and tell somebody, God can change you today if you believe. Like right now, you can change. Right now, the power of God could come upon you if you just believe in Jesus. You are a witness of that unbelievable message if you dare to speak it. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. The book of Romans goes on to tell us that God gives us up to our own ways. You could be a witness of the heavy words of truth built by the framework of grace to say to somebody, you know what's happened here. God has just let you do what you want, and it's caused you to hit a brick wall. 
Romans 3.11, there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23, we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This just means, it means that even if you're here today and you've just hit that brick wall that I'm talking about, like I'm not talking about Daniel today, I'm talking about you, like you're Nebuchadnezzar, you know that God has unfolded the reality of your life and you're at the bottom bottom of the bottom of the bottom, and I'm telling you, you may be here today because God's trying to get your attention, and it's time for you to say, I'm done with me. I need Christ. Come in and take over. That's the story of the Bible. It's the message of the church, and that's what followers of Jesus are called to proclaim, that from him, through him, and to him are all things, Romans 11:36. So the church corporately and the church individually are called to be witnesses of this good news. So Nebuchadnezzar, back to Daniel 4, was given this revelation from God. Daniel tenderly communicates the truth of it to him. And Daniel 4, we see that Nebuchadnezzar listened, apparently, to Daniel's counsel for a while. But about a year later, the warning that Daniel issued was fully realized. There's a moment where the king is on the top of his palace. He looks over all that's been built in the city of Babylon, and he makes some proud statement about all of what he has built. Verse 30 says, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And in that moment, he's immediately judged by God. So if you buy a new car, be careful what you say about it when you walk into your garage. Nebuchadnezzar is sent out into the field like a wild animal, just as Daniel had warned him. And then, after a period of time, after his sanity returns, in verse 37, Nebuchadnezzar came to realize his place in the world He says, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. See, Nebuchadnezzar learned that lesson. Daniel spoke truth with tenderness. That's Daniel 4. Daniel 5, we see a different kind of truth, truth with a level of urgency. The second story is probably about 20 years later, a new king is on the throne. His name is Belshazzar. He is the son of the co-regent of Babylon. At the time, Nebuchadnezzar and another leader named Nabonidus were co-rulers over Babylon. Apparently, Nabonidus left Babylon. He may have fled because of a coming attack. He may have been out on a diplomatic envoy of some type, and Belshazzar, his son, is left to rule the country. Given what's happening in chapter 5, it is likely that the Persian army had encircled the city of Babylon. The way in which battles went in the ancient Near East, cities would be encircled A siege would be laid to that city, and time would be given to see if they would surrender. If we're right, then that makes the feast that Belshazzar hosts rather odd. 
Verse 1, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. The tone seems to be like he holds this party and he's doing it in front of them for some sort of purpose. Now, it may have been that Belshazzar was delusional, that the threat around him was more severe than what he realized, or he may have been, and this is what I think, he may have been using this celebration as a way to communicate we are supreme. In fact, we're so supreme that even though we're surrounded by the Persian Empire, we're still going to throw a massive feast. Perhaps he was using this party as a way to serve as some kind of confidence builder for himself, or maybe it was designed to drown out his fears or to try and communicate strength to those around him. Just note it somewhere that not everybody who's partying is actually really happy. Not everybody who communicates self-confident is truly self-confident. In fact, you know what I found? I found the folks who party the hardest are running from something. And the folks that communicate uber self-confidence, when you peel it all back, are uber insecure. In the midst of this party, the king orders that the golden vessels from Jerusalem should be brought out, and these utensils should be used for their lavish gala in verse 2. They retrieve the, the vessels from the destroyed city of Jerusalem and from the temple. They, they use the, the, the vessels of gold, and the king, his lords, according to verses 3 and 4, his wives, his concubines, they drank from them, and the text says, and they praised the gods of gold silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. They knew what they were doing. They took the vessels of Yahweh, the God of Israel, a nation they had conquered. They used those exact vessels and offered toast after toast after toast to the God of gold, to the God of gold, to the God of silver, to the God of silver. David Helm in his commentary on Daniel says this, the king was declaring to everyone that with his hand, he held a firm grip on God. He owned Yahweh. And yet his celebration was short-lived. In a few hours, he's going to be dead. You know what's remarkable? Jesus says something really similar in Matthew 24 about the coming judgment. He says, for as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. One of the pictures that we see in the Bible is the scary invincibility that some people try to portray, and all it takes is a diagnosis, an accident, a job change, something, and they realize, whoa, I'm not as invincible as what I thought I was. In verse five, we see that in the midst of the celebration, a hand appears. This is where you get the phrase, the handwriting on the wall, right here, Daniel chapter 5. And, and a hand scratches four words out, mine, mine, tekel, parson. Verse 6 tells us that immediately the king's color changed. His thoughts alarmed him, his limbs grew weak, his knees knocked together. You could have just said he was scared, right? But Daniel wanted you to really know. This is a ridiculous image. This king is gone from a party hardy, can't touch this king, and now he's filled with panic. And he calls loudly for the wise men to come in. 
They can interpret the meaning of the words, and so in verse 10, the queen mother suggests that Daniel should be brought in to interpret the word. She describes him in verse 11 as a man in whom is the spirit of the gods, an excellent spirit, knowledgeable, and understanding to interpret dreams and to solve problems. He's probably 80 years old at this point. He was taken captive as a teenager, indoctrinated into the Babylonian ways, made it through the courts, and now at 80 years old, he's still called upon in order to solve problems. You know, if you're a grandpa or a grandma, can I just have a word with you a moment? You know you still have power and influence, right? Those little cards that you send to your grandkids with little bits of money in them, those, that helps too. <laughs> used to, when I was a kid, used to get little gift certificates to McDonald's. Now I don't know what you do, Starbucks gift cards or whatever it is. When you underline a little word in a card or when you tell your grandkids, hey, I'm praying for you, when the bottom drops out on their life and they think, who can I call to ask to pray for me? Be the kind of grandparent that your grandkids say, I need to call them. Be the kind of mom or dad. Be the kind of father that when the bottom drops out, your kids are inclined to call you. And don't discount the fact that Daniel, for all of these years, is building a reputation, building a reputation, building a level, a, a, a pursuit of godliness. And we'll see the final one next week. So that when this arrogant, petulant king is scared, the queen mother says, you need to call Daniel. Daniel's words are clear and urgent. Doesn't have the level of tenderness that he had with Nebuchadnezzar. It's probably because of the shallowness of Belshazzar and because of his different relationship with him. Daniel interprets the four words in verses 24 and 28, but before that we hear the introduction of it where Belshazzar knew what had happened to Nebuchadnezzar. He knew that Nebuchadnezzar's heart had been lifted up and Belshazzar was following right in his path. His spirit was hardened, he acted proudly, he was brought down low, his glory was taken from him. You know, there's been opportunities that I've had as a pastor to, to meet with folks who when the bottom has dropped out and, and, and I found this to be a useful way to talk with somebody, essentially say to them, so we're here, you probably knew we would come to this point, didn't you? Invariably, people say, yeah, I did. You knew that where you were headed was heading the wrong direction, didn't you? I did. Belshazzar, in effect, knew better. Verse 23, but you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. The vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And then he says, you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, of iron, of stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Daniel is bringing moral and spiritual clarity to this king and to the kingdom, and so in the midst of all of this partying, Daniel brings a, a dose of divine reality to the throne room. He brings God's message to a king who's filled with self-congratulatory idolatry. 
And then he interprets it. Counted, counted, found waiting, found wanting rather, and divided. The message is Belshazzar, God has numbered your days. God has weighed your days and found them wanting. He has decreed that your kingdom should be divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. His message was simply a message of deserved justice. The very God that Belshazzar had mocked by virtue of the utensils that he had used was now bringing an end to his reign. It was over. And that very night, according to verses 30 and 31, Belshazzar was killed. Darius the Mede ruled in his place. Divine judgment had come, and Daniel was providentially positioned in order to interpret God's words. So what do we do with this? How do, how do we live differently in the midst of our culture in which we live. If you're a follower of Jesus, what is, what is the gospel, what is the Bible, and what does the example of Daniel say to us? Here's a few thoughts. Number one, I want to encourage you to be the kind of person that builds lots of grace bridges over time. Listen, in order to be able to speak the truth of God to people, you need to earn the right to be heard. We have to be the kind of people whose lives match our message. I was thinking this week about the fruit of the Spirit. Oh, that we would be the kind of people marked by these kinds of words, love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Are you known by those words in your sphere of influence? Are you known as the kind of person who, who, there's something different about you? The kind of person that somebody might say to you at some point in time in their life when the bottom falls out, look, you seem to be different. Like, can you help me? We are to love our neighbors as ourselves, according to Mark 12. We are to serve others, knowing that we are ultimately serving Christ, according to Ephesians chapter 6. And so, in small and consistent ways, we are called to build the kind of relationships with one another that provide the opportunity for a different conversation at another time. So keep making those deposits and deposits and deposits and deposits, and then wait and pray for the moment when there's an open door, and when that open door comes, Speak with tenderness and speak with clarity. I want to encourage you to think about your relationships this next week a little differently. Like I'm making deposits and making deposits and the way in which I conduct myself is so that someday at some point in time I'll have the standing to be able to, be able to speak. Number two, Remember that we have the word of God, which is the revelation of God to mankind. Some of you might read the story of Daniel and go, well, I would speak if God would just tell me what to say. I would speak clearly if he could just give a vision like that. I mean, Daniel has an incredible opportunity. God, he knows exactly what he's supposed to say. And I bet if Daniel was here, he would turn that right around and say, I wish I had what you have. I wish I had the full revelation of God in the Word and the full revelation in the person and work of Jesus. We have in our possession the living Word of God, which is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart, according to Hebrews 4.12. We have the revelation of God. We have 
the disclosure of God to mankind, and therefore we must know it and we must, when appropriate, share it. Number three, O church, beware of the fear of man or the intimidation of success. By that I mean that Daniel was placed near some people who seemed to be terribly successful, and they seemed to have it all together. They seemed to be really powerful, and yet they also really needed the truth of God's message. Every person has deep spiritual needs. Pull back the layers of their life, and you'll find the same kind of needs that's in your life. And just because they're well-known or they're famous doesn't mean they have it all together. Don't believe me? Just think of all the people who are famous whose lives are a train wreck. Behind the power, behind the might, behind the success are broken people who are in need of a Savior. That also means your son or daughter or grandson or granddaughter who's walked away from the Lord or you don't know where they're at, or maybe a coworker that you're really burdened for, and they seem like they've got it all together. You need to know that behind the veil, in the quietness of the moment, they don't have it all together. God's placed you to care for them, and when the time comes, to speak tender truth to them. And that leads to the fourth application. When the time is right, Speak biblical truth with clarity and tenderness. Over Daniel's lifetime, we only have a record of a few defining moments. There there may have been more, we don't know. But the reality is, is those crisis moments and those important conversations, they don't come around that often. And therefore, I want to exhort you to pray for those opportunities. Pray that you have an opportunity to speak into your coworker's life. Pray that you have the opportunity to speak into your neighbor's life. Pray that you have the opportunity to speak into your son or daughter's life, or maybe your parents, or maybe today your father's life. And when God creates that opportunity, take a breath, pray a prayer, be kind and speak with clarity. And if it doesn't go perfectly, if you don't say everything exactly right, just rest in the fact that God is the one who controls all the events of this life. In the end, God doesn't need your witness, and yet he's allowed you to be a part of it. Amazing that he chooses to use us to build bridges of grace that can bear the weight of truth. Let us dare to live differently in the world by daring to speak with grace and truth. Let's pray together. Father, there are real people with real lives, names that we know, who we would love to have an opportunity, not in order to prove that we're right, but as an opportunity to have your word do what it does so well in their lives, 
So would you make us the kind of people who believe in your word, who have confidence in you, and can trust that, God, you've opened this door. I need to walk through it, and I'm going to believe and hope in you. So open doors, I pray, Lord, this week for lots of grace deposits, and open a few doors, I pray, as well, for tender truth to be spoken. And help us, regardless of which of the two you ask us to do this week, to trust in you and in your care for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.